This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Guardian writer Chris Godfrey chats to Jackass's Johnny Knoxville on parties, moral panic and risking it all for Jackass. Guardian columnist Marina Hyde on the most widespread miscarriage of justice in British history, the post office scandal. Actor and screenwriter Emma Thompson on embracing the gentle influence of three generations of her family. The Observer's restaurant critic Jay Rayner tells the story of care leaver Chef T Sugarcane London that will feed your soul. And finally, for anyone needing a bit of bedroom advice, journalist and author Nell Frizzell gives us 10 tips to revive a tired relationship. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Before we jump in, a quick warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. First up, original reality TV star, actor and producer Johnny Knoxville's outrageous stunt show Jackass ran for just 10 months but became wildly popular and is still going more than two decades later. Here he talks to Chris Godfrey about being inspired by his hard-drinking father, his years in therapy and suffering brain damage. Read by Michael Amariah. I hear Johnny Knoxville's Tennessee drawl before I see him. I'm gonna get ya, he barks, part children's entertainer, part axe murderer, as he chases the small child of one of his entourage down the hotel corridor. Where's my little honey bunny? His infectious cackle and her giggling shrieks ricochet into the room where I am waiting to meet him. Knoxville has been provoking shock and delight for 22 years, ever since his TV show Jackass first aired on MTV. The formula was beautifully simple. 
a ragtag group of skateboarders and oddballs with a punk rock aesthetic film themselves undertaking painful, grotesque DIY stunts. No context necessary. Audiences tuned in for the backyard suburban anarchy, but stayed for the gang's camaraderie. It was absurd and puerile. The New York Times dismissed the film that followed the TV series as a documentary version of Fight Club, shorn of social insight, intellectual pretension, and cinematic interest. Not many would have described Knoxville and Co. as visionaries when they started hitting each other in the testicles for laughs. But years before YouTube or Twitter, let alone the Kardashians or TikTok, it showed where culture was heading, towards reality TV and would-be celebrities putting themselves in danger for viral footage, towards the constant documenting of our lives for content. Knoxville, who is 50, was born Philip John Clapp Jr. He grew up in the Tennessee city from which he took his stage name, the third and youngest child of a tire company boss and a Sunday school teacher. He has often suggested that the genesis of his career lies with his prankster father. I grew up idolizing him. He was my biggest comedic influence, he says. Philip Sr. liked to trick his employees with laxative spiked milkshakes or fake letters from sexual health clinics. His son was also a target. Sometimes he would wake me up by throwing a glass of water in my face, Knoxville recalls, as if that was the most natural thing in the world. I'd wake up and, of course, I would laugh. He would just start telling me jokes. He couldn't wait for me to be up so he could start telling me jokes. But his father's influence ran deeper than giving him a bug for buffoonery. I grew up always wanting to please people because my dad drank pretty hard, says Knoxville. And when you grow up with an alcoholic father, you want to put out fires and make sure everything's okay. That's what you think as a kid, right? That you can help it that way. Maybe I didn't love myself so much a lot of the time, he suggests. Maybe my self-worth had taken some hits. Knoxville's body has taken plenty of hits too. The comedic masochist, as he calls himself, has been hit by a riot control mine knocked unconscious by a heavyweight boxer and mauled by bulls on multiple occasions. He has suffered breakages, concussions, vertigo and a ripped penis from his attempts to backflip a motorcycle. It has all been in pursuit of good footage. His career is one of the purest expressions of no pain, no glory. But his sense of humour has remained intact throughout. He rarely stops laughing often breaking into a smile that consumes his face, his eyes turning to slits behind thick, black-rimmed glasses. Knoxville created Jackass with two long-time collaborators, the film directors and producers Spike Jones and Jeff Tremaine. But of the trio, only he did stunts. It just naturally happened, he says. I have a big personality, and sometimes I have to reel myself in. That's something that, in therapy, I realized. Like, wow, I can be a lot. So just have some cocoa and settle down. He has been in therapy since 2006. Although he admits he probably got addicted to doing larger stunts, he has so far resisted delving into that side of his psyche. There's other stuff that needs work, he says. I'm like, fix everything else. Let's not mess with the side of me that does stunts, because I don't want to know. We are talking before the launch of Jackass Forever, the fourth of the films that grew out of the initial TV series, 
He was in his late 40s when it was filmed, and you can see the mileage creeping in. The blows hit harder, recovery takes longer. But, judging by early box office results, audiences are not bothered. Even the critics have finally caught up, with GQ asserting that Jackass operates at the intersection of a number of ancient American traditions, with traces of Buster Keaton and the Three Stooges. The New Yorker has saluted its joyous vision of resilience in the face of obvious traumas. Some things make us laugh when we read them. You know, when it gets too highbrow, says Knoxville. But who doesn't like being compared to Buster Keaton? He's a legend. And he's as funny today as he was back then. Someone running and falling down is timeless. It's just funny. Thank God, or I would have no career. Jackass Forever very nearly wasn't funny. In one stunt, in which Knoxville stood in front of a charging bull, he was flipped, spinning into the air before landing on his head. He sustained a broken wrist, broken ribs, and a concussion that left him with brain damage. It took him months to recover, including a course of antidepressants. Did that brush with death change his perspective? No, he says after a long pause. I knew going into this film that this will be the last time I'm going to be doing big stunts. I didn't know I was going to get as injured as I did, but I brought that on myself. I have nothing to complain about, only things to be grateful for. His father died in hospital just before filming began on Jackass Forever. He was my hero, says Knoxville. In the back of my mind, I was like, God, I wanted to tell him we were making another film because that would have made him so happy and lifted his spirits. But I didn't get to do that. Despite his father's drinking, Knoxville had a happy childhood and did well at school for a while. As soon as I hit puberty, I cast my protractor aside, he says with another of those big smiles. I was no longer interested in school because I didn't feel like it was going to be very useful to me. He set his heart on showbiz, moving to Los Angeles at 18. I wanted to be remembered, he says. I wasn't making much money at all. I'm sure I was struggling, but I didn't really look at it like that because I was young and pursuing something I believed in. Plus, he adds, I was young and in Los Angeles. It was so much fun that I took my eye off the ball for a number of years. I was more interested in going out and partying. It wasn't until my then-girlfriend, who became my first wife, got pregnant and we had a daughter on the way that I was like, okay, I really have to figure out what I'm going to do to support this child. That's what really kicked everything into high gear. He started writing for Big Brother, a Southern California skateboard and culture magazine, where Tremaine was the editor and Jones a photographer. He acted in TV commercials with little concern about compromising artistic integrity. Oh, are you kidding? I was fucking thrilled, he says. You work for a day, and then you get residuals. When Jackass got on TV, there were a handful of people who were like, oh, he sold out. I'm like, fuck you, I sold out years ago. I was advertising Dentine Ice Gum, Taco Bell, whatever I could do to support my family. One day, he pitched Big Brother a story in which he would test self-defense equipment on himself pepper spray, stun guns, and so on. Tremaine suggested he film it. The resulting video was widely circulated on VHS, like a sort of analog viral video. Before long, they were making jackass for MTV.
The outrage at the resulting show was inevitable. There was disgust at its aggressively lewd lowbrow larks and alarm that others would imitate them. The moral panic was fueled by the Connecticut Senator Joe Lieberman, who said, There are some things that are so potentially dangerous and inciting, particularly to vulnerable children, that they should not be put on TV. I didn't really care about the moral outrage, says Knoxville, but I didn't like when we would have copycat incidents and kids would get hurt. The public outcry forced MTV's hand. Lawyers and health and safety officials got involved. Defanged and demotivated, they said you can't jump off anything higher than four foot. Knoxville quit to make movies exactly the way he wanted to. The franchise that began in 2002 with Jackass the Movie has since spawned spin-off films such as Bad Grandpa, more TV shows, a video game, and countless imitators. I went from no one knowing my name, working in a restaurant waiting tables, to the cover of Rolling Stone, which is a big jump from a small town in East Tennessee, says Knoxville. It took a while for me to get my feet under me. Numerous Jackass cast members have spoken about their battles with drug and alcohol addiction, most notably Stephen Glover, Steve-O, who spent time in a psychiatric hospital. He is now sober. Knoxville doesn't think you can blame his creation. Everyone was doing that quite honestly before he started, he says. I guess you get a certain personality that does what we do, that lives hard and laughs hard, but we're never loaded during shooting. If someone's drinking, they can't do stunts. Jackass Forever was the first film without Ryan Dunn, one of the original cast members who died in a drink-driving accident in 2011. It was crushing to have that spirit extinguished, Knoxville says. It's something that we are all still dealing with and will be dealing with the rest of our lives. We all lost a brother. For a while, he wasn't sure he should make another film without Dunn, but we all felt we still had something to say. Does Knoxville worry about dying? I have fear, but I have a way to manage it. I've almost died a few times making jackass over the years, but I'm still here, he says, knocking the wooden table between us. No nightmares about former stunts. No bulls hurtling towards him in his sleep. No, the opposite. I laugh in my sleep. I just cackle, he says. My wife hears it, so yeah, I go to bed feeling pretty good. What does scare him then? Something happening to my children, my family, he replies earnestly. I'm a father first, right? And I worry about them. That scares me. Knoxville lives with his second wife, Naomi, and their two young children, Rocco and Arlo. He also has a grown-up daughter, Madison, by his first wife. He had tried to keep the younger kids blissfully unaware of his career, but then six-year-old Rocco found out about the show from school friends. I said, yeah, Dad has a silly show where he does pranks and stunts, but it's not really appropriate for you to see, especially for him, because he's wired like my father. He has that rambunctious spirit, and I'm afraid that he would want to do it. And that's just not going to be on the cards. Does Knoxville ever think he's being selfish by putting his life on the line? Does he worry about how his wife and children might be affected? It is not as if Jackass is his only career option. As well as running Dick House Productions with Tremaine and Jones, he has had acting roles in The Dukes of Hazard, The Ringer, and Men in Black 2. He will soon be filming a new show for Hulu, a Steve Levitan project called Reboot. Then there is Big Ass Happy Family Jubilee, 
the radio show he does with his cousin, the singer-songwriter Roger Allen Wade. There's risk, Knoxville admits. The stunts upset everyone. During filming, they're worried, and for good reason. But at the end of the day, this is what I do. And there's a lot of people who have jobs that are dangerous. Can you imagine how a policeman's wife feels? Or a fireman's? I'm just a half-assed stuntman. I've almost died a few times, but I'm still here. Johnny Knoxville on parties, moral panic, and risking it all for jackass by Chris Godfrey. Read by Michael Amariah. Next. It was the word of hundreds of post office workers against a faulty computer system. Guess who was believed? Marina Hyde on the devastating effects of the post office scandal on thousands of innocent people and the predictable outcome of those really at fault. This piece is read by Emma Powell. Some stories feel so unbelievable that every time you think of them again, you have to sit with the basic concept for a few moments just to remind yourself how truly, staggeringly outrageous the whole business is. It's almost as if your head has to be got round it all over again every single time you go there. I'm like that with the post office scandal, which, as of this week, is a subject of an active public inquiry. In the spirit of rearranging our heads once more, let's do the brief summary. Between 2000 and 2014, 736 sub-postmasters and postmistresses were prosecuted of theft, fraud and false accounting in the branches of the post office they ran. Their lives and the lives of thousands of others were torn apart. They were financially ruined, put out of work, locally shunned, driven into poor health and addiction, saw their marriages destroyed. Some from a 19-year-old woman, to mothers of young children, to all manner of others, were imprisoned for many months. At least 33 victims of the scandal are now dead. At least four reportedly took their own lives. But they had done nothing wrong. They had done nothing wrong. The blame, in fact, lay with Horizon, a faulty computer system designed by Fujitsu and imposed on their branches by post office management. It is currently being described as the most widespread miscarriage of justice in British history. And here's the kicker. Many post office operators have been reporting problems with Horizon to the post office right from the outset. The post office not only failed to adequately investigate, but demanded the staff personally made up the financial shortfalls and denied to the complainants that anyone else had similar issues. Up in the rarefied air of the executive suite was Paula Venels, who took over as CEO in 2012. Under her leadership, the post office prosecuted hundreds of sub-postmasters. To this date, more than 20 years on for some cases, Nobody from the post office or Fujitsu or the civil servants charged with oversight has been held accountable, much less faced criminal investigation themselves. Instead, victims' heads have rolled. So, that's the short version. But of course, it all feels inadequate. Even simply listing every individual injustice in the sparsest possible terms would take far more space than I have available. At even cursory depth, 
every single story is utterly heartbreaking and utterly extraordinary. And to add to the sheer what-the-fuckery, these are sub-postmasters we're talking about, often working meticulously for long hours serving small communities. It's backbone of Britain stuff, and the prison doors clanged shut on them. Among other burning questions, then, the current inquiry will look at whether the post office bigwigs knew there were bugs and glitches in the computer system, but pushed ahead with the prosecuting and the life-ruining anyway. I don't want to unleash too many spoilers here. It's important that viewers get to experience the breakneck magic of a British public inquiry in real time. But let's just say that a High Court judge in 2019 described the post office's approach as the 21st century equivalent of maintaining that the earth is flat. Are the highlights of the story? You'll enjoy the episode covering the bit where post office CEO Paula Venels gets a CBE in the year 2019. 2019. And then gets made both chair of London's Imperial College Healthcare NHS Trust and something called a non-executive board member of the Cabinet Office, presumably because the government thought it important to bring in our brightest brains from business. By way of an inspired satirical touch, Paula also moonlighted as an Anglican priest and as a member of the Church of England Ethical Investment Advisory Group. She has since stepped back from these positions. In 2019, after the post office agreed to pay nearly £58 million to settle claims, Venels issued a statement saying, I'm truly sorry we were unable to find both a solution and a resolution outside of litigation, and for the distress this caused. Ah, students of apology types may have identified this as the classic, sorry that we just had to hound you into court apology. It's a real pro move and your inability to execute it is why you, an amateur, live in fear of losing your livelihood, while hotshots like Paula and co. take millions and get bumped up into first class on the gravy train, no matter how monstrous their screw-ups. For while the postmasters have gone through the sort of ringer that makes Kafka feel like a Disney musical, extraordinary compassion has been shown to the managerial class in all this, who've been showered with honours and directorships and bonuses throughout. Elsewhere, it must be said that this sorry saga has not been the finest hour of much of the news media. Most papers and TV news outlets would now admit they horribly underreported the post office story over the years, with all the running made by the likes of Private Eye, Computer Weekly, and the BBC journalist Nick Wallace, to say nothing of the campaigning victims themselves, such as the heroic Alan Bates. As for the wider lessons of the scandal, what a lot it says about a society crossing the threshold of the third millennium that thousands of entirely upstanding human beings were disbelieved in favour of trusting a computer. Actually believing in the confusion and anguish of that famously gangsterish demographic, British sub-postmasters, was regarded as a wholly irrational act. This, I'm afraid, is a version of only following orders. And it's also, alas, the bit where those of us who cannot believe it happened simply have to look around us. Today, technology is deferred to even in the face of human tragedy far more than it was 20 years ago. Spool onward in the timeline and you will find more and more examples of ways in which technology was deemed to know best. In 2015, 
it emerged that in one three-year period, 2,380 sick and disabled people had died shortly after being declared fit for work by a computerised test and having their sickness benefits withdrawn. Today, bereaved parents are told that nothing can be done about the algorithms that pushed their teenage children remorselessly in the direction of content they believe ultimately contributed to them taking their own lives. Even as a Facebook whistleblower recently said that the firm was unwilling to accept even little slivers of profit being sacrificed for safety. At the time the post office scandal began unfolding, Facebook wasn't even a glint in Mark Zuckerberg's eye. Now, many technology firms are more powerful than nation states. At the time, Little Britain's Carol Beer worked as a bank teller or holiday rep. Now, computer says no, culture runs the world. That was The Innocent Have Paid a High Price for the Post Office Scandal, The Guilty Have Not, by Marina Hyde, read by Emma Powell. We'll be back after this short break. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, as part of a special Guardian series called Living in a Woman's Body, actor and screenwriter Emma Thompson reflects on her relationship with her daughter and mother and how together they wordlessly recalibrate each other. Read by Emma Powell. I found myself, during our strange second Covid Christmas, sandwiched between my 22-year-old daughter and my 89-year-old mother. This year, more than ever, the umbilical connection between us tugged at me as I, Janus in waiting, observed, monitored, and enjoyed the miraculous luxury of three generations together. My daughter has tattoos. I like them, which surprises me. I understand the urge to mark life's more seismic events upon your body. They sear themselves into our brains, after all, so perhaps tattoos are just the outer version of the inner burns. My mother's body bears witness in more traditional ways. Watching her navigate its frailty and bentness is a daily learning, a meditation. She taught me to walk when I was a baby, and now she teaches me how I will walk when I am old, how to reach for this, bend for that, move around the obstacles like an ancient, patient stream. I try not to help. 
Living between these bodies is an odd mixture of joy and grief. My daughter thrums. Her life force changes the atmosphere in the room as soon as she enters. We all receive the electrical charge and, once again, we dance. I must have done that once. Or my daughter comes in upset, chaotic, spinning out and sits by my mother and receives a calming nod. No questions, I note, and the chaos subsides. Whatever made us think we could live without this? We were stuck on our goals and our aspirations and, God forbid, our dreams. We were too busy to notice how the bodies silently speak to one another, how we breathe each other in, recalibrate and breathe out. But the meeting of these life forces now feels more essential than ever. We are constantly exchanging ever-altering resonances and balance occurs. Not perfectly, nothing's perfect, but consistently we change and reset one another's state. So instead of grieving my mother's aging, instead of envying my daughter's youth, I find I am buoyed up and calmed down by turn. Why is my fanny getting bigger? My mother breathes at me one morning as she's washing the forks. We laugh for quite a long time. Her skin reminds me of my daughter's when she was a baby. The same, almost not there, softness, lovely to stroke. It feels like she's returning to something. When I hold my daughter, I can feel in deeply recessed parts of my body her vulnerability. She's all fire and sparks, but I know it's there. I try not to help. She's brimful of the world, and the image in my mind's eye is of her walking away, towards the sun, carrying a rucksack. My mother, sitting by the fire, dozing to the crackle, and me, standing in the doorway, held between the two states of departure, one towards action and one into stillness. It's a rich position to be in, full of nutrients somehow. I exist between them. I'm grateful I can still get up a hill, and I'm depressed about my thighs. That was Emma Thompson on Living in a Woman's Body, read by Emma Powell. Next, Observer restaurant critic Jay Rayner has not just high praise for Sugarcane London's food, but the man who brought it all together, revealing the importance of neighbourhood restaurants and the significance of communities. Read by Michael Amariah. Sugarcane London is a small, tidy Caribbean cafe on the Wandsworth Road, serving, among other things, very good jerk chicken. The skin is crisped and blackened and has a sweet aromatic warmth from an enthusiastic assault by a seasoning mix heavy with the wonder that is allspice. This is a restaurant review, so obviously we care about these things. The food matters and it will get its moment. But for now, there is another story that needs to be told, that of the man responsible for the jerk chicken and all the other deep enfolding dishes coming out of the tiny open kitchen. I first heard about Terrell McIntosh, self-styled as Chef T, courtesy of his neighbours. A few weeks ago, the restaurant was broken into. The shutters were wrecked, equipment and stock filched, the till emptied. Sugarcane London, one neighbour told me, 
had been a labor of love for Chef T, who had precious free resources when he started out and now had nothing. The local community, his neighbors and customers crowdfunded the money he needed to get the place back on its feet. We talk earnestly about the importance of neighborhood restaurants. We talk about their significance to communities. But this suggested a next level kind of love, a next level kind of importance. With good reason. As Chef T explained in the press release he put out in 2020 when the restaurant first opened, and which, to my shame, I completely missed, he grew up in care and wanted to do something for other care leavers. He is now 27, but has packed a lot into that short life. A bunch of degrees and time as a teacher, alongside jobs at restaurants such as Negril and Blue's Kitchen in Brixton. He loved working and reworking Jamaican recipes at home, but by the point the pandemic arrived, he had decided to retrain in midwifery. Then, one morning, during a head-clearing lockdown walk, he came across what had once been a corner shop, but was now empty. He convinced the landlord to give him the lease. He bought second-hand kitchen equipment that would just about do the job. He painted the signage himself because he didn't have the money to get anyone else to do it, and nailed together the frame of a beach shack within the shop. There are wooden struts painted red and blue and colorful sheets of corrugated iron playing the part of sloping roofs. There are wooden tables and chairs. Within a few weeks, he had enough money to employ four care leavers. As he wrote, I'm a helper, a changer, and this is what Sugarcane London is about. I'm trying to use my company as a vessel for others. Accordingly, the words become part of our story are painted in his own hand across the front. I thought I would, not just by reporting the gloomy break-in news or the better fable of the crowdfunder, but by eating there, because that story starts to wobble if the food doesn't stand up to examination. It really does. This is Chef T's gentle journey around the islands. From Trinidad comes soft, flaky roti with a deep, sweet and sticky spiced gravy for dunking into. And, as ever, if no one is looking, a little light sippage. Although, even if they were looking, no one would really care. It's not that kind of place. Sip away. Alongside the half-jerk chicken for nine pounds, we have the jerk ribs, which have been braised until ready to leave the bone they called home, appropriately drenched in a sweet, hot glaze. Ask for more napkins. We have the curry goat, apparently cooked in the Dutch pot for four hours, the way my nan taught me. His nan taught him well. There is a fiery power to the gravy, which makes my scalp sweat and lots of bones to be nibbled clean. The same would be true of the 24-hour slow-braised oxtail full of fresh spinach leaves now wilting gently in the heat, except that the meat has all but fallen away to make the deepest of stews. I suck the bones anyway. There is jerk rice and a big bowl of kale and callaloo to make sure you've eaten your greens. This is all comfort food, made by someone who knows a bit about having to find a place of safety and now wants to offer you one too. We try their cocktails, a dark and stormy for £6.50 and something the colour of candy canes made with pink gin and pink ting for Valentine's Day. Both display a generous approach to measures. Mind you, if a little light inebriation is desired, you could miss out the cocktail list and head straight for dessert.
which includes a section entitled Alcohol-Soaked Cakes. The ineffably light and crumbly chocolate cake comes doused in almond liqueur. On the side is a pot of their own custard, containing a depth charge of dark rum. Or there's a bread and butter pudding with more dark rum. Chef T likes rum. At the bottom of the menu it says, no service is added to your bill, so please tip so I can buy my staff rum. Tonight, he says, is one of the first times the kitchen has handled service without him while he works the tables. They've done a terrific job. They've earned both their rum and their tips. Chef T is a gentle but charismatic figure who somehow manages the important business of showing the love to his regulars while getting the dishes out and servicing the delivery drivers who turn up at the door. We fall to talking. There is no space in a small, intimate room like this for any pretense. He knows why I am here, and I make it clear how well we have been fed. Chef T admits from the very dark moment in the immediate aftermath of the break-in, business is now good. Support from the community has been amazing. I tell him what he has done has been equally amazing. He nods gently and without any sight simply says, I'm a care leaver from a disadvantaged background. I'm black and gay. One of the youngest restaurateurs in the country who opened his restaurant during the pandemic by himself with just 3,000 pounds. I should be a statistic. Instead, I've broken the narrative and the barriers. Despite everything against me, I'm still standing. In a space this small, Everyone can hear our conversation. Spontaneously, his customers give him a round of applause. Quite right too. That was Jay Rayner on Sugarcane London. This is all comfort food. Read by Michael Amariah. In our final piece, journalist and author Nell Frizzell observes that Given enough time, even the most loving couple can get sick of each other. So, in a bid to roll back the years, she reaches out to those in the know to provide 10 tips to revive a tired relationship. Read by Emma Powell. At what point do you think a relationship becomes a long-term relationship? I asked my boyfriend while sitting on the toilet having a post-dinner week. He's in front of the mirror, trimming the single thick black hair that grows out from a mole on his cheek. Our son is in the bath next to us, squirting water from one stainless steel mixing bowl into the other, using a cowpole syringe. About here, he says, gesturing towards the room, past my naked thighs with a pair of nail scissors. After nearly two years of intermittent lockdowns, Working from home, reduced opportunities for travel, socialising and, in many cases, making money and more illness. A lot of long-term relationships are looking a little tired, a little frayed. Tempers have run short. Desire has faded. Especially on this most romantic of days, many of us will be thinking that we need to address things, to freshen up, to repair. This calls for more than a box of chocolates and a bunch of flowers. But where to start? I've been gleaning advice from those who've gone before me, from friends, relationship counsellors, old colleagues, writers and philosophers, even my family. Lower your expectations. 
Your partner is not psychic. They cannot know what you think and feel and want at every turn. Nor is your partner an extension of you. They will frequently and unconsciously contradict you. So lower your expectations and try as much as possible to be kind. Standing in the hob, cooking yet another vat of soup, my partner and I have both decided that we need to eat fewer meals centered on butter and flour. I reread Alan de Botton's famous New Yorker essay, Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. We need to swap the romantic view for a tragic and at points comedic awareness that every human will frustrate, anger, annoy, madden and disappoint us. And we will, without any malice, do the same to them. There can be no end to our sense of emptiness and incompleteness. But none of this is unusual or grounds for divorce. Choosing whom to commit ourselves to is merely a case of identifying which particular variety of suffering we would most like to sacrifice ourselves for. I had some salt and a knob of butter. Well, come on. Mind your language. My sister's dad, who for the genealogists in the room is not my dad, once told me that people don't break up over big things. They break up over how they talk to each other. Yes, in the end, your partner might sleep with someone else or steal your rent. But in most cases, the damage is done when you stop saying goodbye at the end of phone calls. Stop saying thank you for dinner. Stop asking the other person how their day was. However, blaming someone else's behaviour is unlikely to change it. People could really do with saying what they need, not what they think the other partner should do says Relate counsellor Josh Smith, who's been working with couples and families for more than five years. Also, set a time and space when you're going to talk about things, but give it a time limit. A person who is feeling anxious might want to talk about an issue, but their partner might be more inclined to avoid difficult conversations and worried it will go on forever. So you could say, let's talk for half an hour and then stop. Smith also recommends giving yourself a time-out during those exhausting, essential conversations. When our nervous system gets very aroused, we might say things we don't mean, or not be able to say very much at all and disconnect emotionally. Being able to take a time-out with a planned time to return to the discussion will help you listen. Go to counselling while you still like each other. When you hear counsellors talk about their clients, says Smith, the one thing that comes up time and time again is that they wish they'd come sooner. Before the fight-or-flight response got so ingrained and the conflict so advanced that partners could no longer hear each other. So, to use a rather threadbare analogy, maybe treat relationship counselling like going to the gym, something that you use regularly to keep things healthy, to nip small problems in the bud rather than turn to when things have seriously gone to seed. It is a privilege that many people can't afford, of course, but it might also be money well spent. Get into bed and see what happens. Sex is a pretty fundamental and free way to cement intimacy in a relationship. It can also act as a microcosm for the relationship. When people are feeling stressed, anxious, avoidant, low in self-esteem, bored or overlooked, it will almost inevitably lead to a drop-off in bouncing bed springs. For most of the couples I see, sex is an issue, says Smith. It's not unusual for people in long-term relationships to have very little sex. Well, who'd have guessed? 
but that's not a problem if it's not a problem, he adds. Don't let normative ideas about sex get in the way. That doesn't mean you have to give up just yet. When I asked my family WhatsApp group how to reboot a long-term relationship, one cousin replied, Actively listen, be nice to each other, and have sex even in times you might not feel like it. And then remember how much you do actually like it. Flirt with other people. If you still need a little boost, remember what the psychotherapist Esther Perel says about desire in her TED Talk, The Secret to Desire in a Long-Term Relationship. If there is a verb for me that comes with love, it's to have. And if there's a verb that comes with desire, it is to want. The journalist Katie Antonyou puts it like this. Go to a party and watch your partner flirt with other people and remember why you find them hot. And flirt with other people and remember people find you hot. Then go home together. Do at least one thing separately every day. One of the great challenges in a long-term relationship is judging how much time to actually spend together. During the pandemic, I noticed that people's lives became a bit enmeshed, says Smith, in possibly the greatest understatement of 2022. Having different experiences and being able to bring those back into the relationship can be really healthy. As Perel points out, we come to one person and we're basically asking them to give us what once an entire village used to provide. We want security, companionship, perhaps children, a best friend, a trusted confidant, a red-hot lover, and someone to help us fulfil our daily domestic tasks. This is, probably, an unfair expectation of any single person. Put too many eggs in the long-term partner basket and cracks are going to show, if not yolk and leaking albumen. So don't be afraid to look outside your relationship for other connections. It is not a criticism of your romantic relationship to go on holiday, share childcare, work, go to dinner, play football and watch films with other people. And whether it's a hobby, a shed or a separate bed, don't be afraid to carve out a private sphere within your relationship. My greatest, and possibly only, bit of advice about sustaining a long-term relationship is to share a bed but have two separate duvets. The Germans, as is so often the case, have the answer. Feel the fear. Long-term relationships aren't like warm baths. They're like holding a tiger by the tail. I'm on the phone to a friend who's been in his current relationship. I say current because honestly, who am I to say? For a mere 43 years. When it comes to relationship advice, as he admits, his understanding of dating, casual sex, breakups and asking people out is minimal. She moved in when I was 19 and that was it really but he is rather useful on the long-term front. There are two main approaches as I see it, he says. There is the passive state, which some people can find very sustaining, when it would basically be such a faff to split up that you're staying together. I think of my mortgage and our son and the fact that I still cannot replace my brake pads. Or there is the active approach, where you're always opting in. That's what I chose. The reason he and his partner didn't marry for the first 42 years of their relationship, he says, is that they always wanted to know that they were together because they were choosing to be so. I quite liked the jeopardy 
he says. It's a constant dialogue between exhilaration and exhaustion. At any time, I could have walked away. We had made no promise. There was no contract, which meant that every day I knew I was there because I wanted to be there. But what about the days when you don't want to be there? I ask, picking a used tea bag off the lid of the compost bin and putting it into the compost bin. Well, that's when the exhaustion comes in, he says. And you have to have those conversations about where you are and what you want. Don't be afraid of all change. A priest once told me that, over a lifetime, you will be married several times, and if you're lucky, that will be to the same person. Children, work, where you live, money, health, the things that change your life will change your relationship too. So do the work to make those changes happen with, and in parallel to, your partner. Talk to each other about the ways you are developing and how you can adapt the dimensions and texture of your relationship to fit. Few of us would really want to be the person we were ten years ago. In my case, single, recently redundant and staying in my mum's spare room. So don't expect your partner or your relationship to be held in aspic either. It is also worth pointing out that the things that bring you stress outside your relationship, money worries, illness, unemployment, housing insecurity, the demands of parenting, grief and moving home, will create stress within your relationship. So check if there are things you can do to improve your own situation before blaming your partner. Make time for quality time, even if you hate the phrase. Date nights worked for the Obamas, who once famously flew to New York, took a limo to dinner, watched a Broadway show and then flew home all in one night during his presidency. And it was noticeable to me that the first time my partner and I spent a night away together since our son was born four years ago, we ended up not only sleeping in a bedroom covered in photographs of someone else's whippets, but getting engaged. It doesn't have to involve money, travel or Instagram. Time spent away together from your usual domestic coexistence, even if it's just a swim or a train journey or a trip to a new laundrette, can make a huge difference to how you see your partner. Remember the little joys. Finally, having picked up my partner's socks from the floor, made the bed, rehung the damp, onion-smelling towel he'd flung in a heap over the door, and wiped the peanut butter off my forehead, I asked my old English teacher for his advice. This, after all, is the man who taught Philip Larkin's An Arundel Tomb, with its description of the stone earl and his lady countess, who rigidly persisted, linked through lengths and breadths of time. More to the point, he's been with his partner since they met at a party aged 20, more than 40 years ago. He must, I reasoned, have some ideas about what sustains and revives a long-term relationship. The reply comes back mere minutes later. Amnesia. Dogged optimism. A robust and shared sense of the contemptibility of public figures. Alternating phases of heartfelt loyalty and shameless disloyalty with regard to friends and birth families. Lonesome sheds with tools in them. Compatible levels of existential angst. Sunsets. Recreational stimulants. Utterly selfish projects. Wholly unshared obsessions, a poor sense of smell, frequently sleeping in separate beds, frequently sleeping together, 
children, finding each other ridiculous. Plant life, lakes, oceans, rock pooling, books, solvency, knowing who's better at what, dreaming of elsewhere, avoiding all board games, and exercising dictatorial authority over territories in different areas of daily mundanities. His wife, he later tells me, probably had a better list. I would happily marry either of them. Oh, and one final note. In all my research, nobody mentions shutting the door when you're on the toilet. But I'd say give it a try. That was Get Into Bed and See What Happens by Nell Frizzell. Read by Emma Powell. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like and subscribe. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. The articles were read by Michael Amariah and Emma Powell and presented by me, Savannah Ayode-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. Music and sound design by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers are Danielle Stevens and Nicole Jackson. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.